What's up, everyone? This is Wes Lyon from McGill and Lyon Dental Advisors. Welcome to the Drilling It Down podcast. More dentists than ever are searching for solid, independent, objective financial advice. On this show, I sit down with my guests to help you see clearly through the fall, providing education as it relates to practice management, tax planning, investing, practice transitions, really any financial topic you can name that's going to help you reach your goals. Right, welcome to another episode of the Drilling It Down podcast. With me today, I have my original co-host on the Drilling It Down webinar series. Welcome to the podcast exclusively for the first time, Jonathan Martin. How are you doing today? How are you doing? Great, man. Thanks for having me. <laughs> now, now that everyone listening may know who Jonathan is, so I'll give Jonathan a brief overview. You've been doing transitions dental practice transitions for, has it been almost 20 now? Are you at 20? This is my 19th year. 19th year. Almost been doing this for 20 years. Still by the lines on my face. (laughs) So Jonathan, I think that entire time you've been here with the McGill and Hill group, correct? That's right. Well, awesome. Well, we're super excited to have you to the show here. If you don't mind, just give me, you know, 30 seconds about who you are and what exactly it is you do as it relates to dental transitions. I think Today's episode is going to be on one specific aspect of it, but I think there's quite a bit there. So do you only concentrate on one area? Do you specialize in something or tell me how you work with dentists? Yeah. So first off, I'm a CPA. Again, this 19th year I've been doing this. So, you know, starting to kind of figure it out. You know, transitions is a pretty broad umbrella. Basically, you know, we work with docs who are ultimately looking to go through a, you know, transition in their ownership. So for some doctors, that means you know, selling 100% of their practice to another doctor and walking away. In some cases, it means selling a fractional interest in their practice to another doctor. They bring somebody in who's going to work for a couple of years as an associate, buy maybe a third or a 50% interest, and those, talk, those doctors work together as partners for the foreseeable future. In some cases, and, you know, we've seen this a lot in more recent history, but in some cases it's affiliating with a DSO, you know, whether that's selling or a hundred percent or a part of their practice to a corporate group, something that we've seen dramatically increase over the last, you know, five years. But I mean, we did our first DSO affiliation uh, with at the time, our largest practice uh, 14 years ago. And since then, we've seen more and more and more of those transactions year over year. So, you know, all of those different transition alternatives kind of fall under that umbrella term, but we don't just focus on one type of transition just because, you know, it's not a one size fits all world when it comes to, you know, selling your business. And so, you know, what we do as part of the broader McGill Hill group is try to figure out what makes the most, you know, qualitative sense and financial sense for any of our clients and build the transition plan around them. And in a lot of cases, that involves evaluating all of the alternatives. You know, most doctors don't come to us 100% set on transitioning one particular way. They need guidance in figuring out, you know, what their options are and what are the financial ramifications of those options. So that's what we do. Well, it's also funny. Some doctors do come to us that way. I remember I had a doctor, he, (laughs) he called me up and he goes, Jonathan Martin told me I had to call you. And I go, okay, well, why is that? He goes, well, I got an offer from a DSO for $3 million and I wanted to do a DSO transition. He told me I could get six, but he told me he wouldn't let me do it because my age. And he said to call you. True, true. There are those doctors that come to you dead set on doing it a certain way. And sometimes our job is to explain to them why that maybe that isn't their best option. 
No, well, perfect. Well, today's episode, we really want to get everyone an update on what's going on in the private equity world, the DSO world, and really kind of more broadly about how this impacts dental transitions, period. But, you know, for the last, gosh, has it been, when we say it's really cranked up, six, seven years ago, the DSO stuff really started taking off. In the last three to five, it just exploded. And I think last year, we finally got a year where not every practice was selling to a DSO. And, you know, it seemed to me, and I could be wrong, I I don't live and breathe transitions to the same degree you do. But did deal flow slow down? Can you explain to me just overall updates? What was the DSO market like last year? Yeah. So, you know, if you go back to you know, like you mentioned, six, seven years ago when, you know, the industry consolidation really started picking up dramatically, you know, 2017, 2018. I mean, since then, and even prior to that, we saw year over year over year increases in the number of transactions that were being done, you know, the number of practices that we're selling to or affiliating with corporate groups. And that wasn't just, you know, in our shop, that was, you know, other groups out there who do these types of transactions as well. Year over year over year increases uh, in the number of transactions and the amount of consolidation. 2023 was the first year that that did not happen, where the number of transactions didn't exceed the pr- the previous year. That's a pretty big deal here. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, so deal flow absolutely, you know, slowed down in 2023 compared to prior years, and that really started in mid-2022, which, you know, as you know, came along with a lot of other things that started happening economically. Now, can I butt in here and ask you something? Would you say transitions slowed down in general or just DSO sales? DSO affiliation. Okay. Yeah, yeah, So yeah. transitions so, still occurring. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're talking specifically about, you know, the number of DSO affiliations really came to, you know, not, and I wouldn't say a, a screeching halt by any means, but again, for the first time in history, it slowed down. The number of transactions that occurred in 2023 was fewer than the prior year. And again, that slowdown was really, you know, we started to see it in mid-2022 due to a number of economic conditions. I mean, the biggest one, increasing interest rates. You know, money became more expensive. Obviously, you know, most of these DSOs, you know, they're borrowing their money and the private equity groups that back them, they are borrowing their money. And a lot of these groups, you know, while you and I, you know, if we're going to buy a dental practice, we're going to go to a bank and borrow the money. We're borrowing at the time at, you know, around 2%. You know, these groups were borrowing at, you know, easily five, six percent. And so, you know, when interest rates started going up, a lot of those interest rates jumped up into double digits, you know, 10, 11 percent interest rates. And as you can imagine, when all of a sudden a lot of your profit is going towards paying, you know, twice the amount of interest you were just a few months earlier, that changes things economically. So, you know, interest rates started going up pretty dramatically mid 2022. Also, you know, the issue with inflation you know, cost of labor went up, cost of goods went up. So this kind of trifecta of, of you know, negativity, I guess, led to a lot of different reactions from different groups. You know, some of the groups that we've done a lot of transactions with, you can call them legacy DSOs. A lot of people like to use that term. And, and what they mean by that is just groups that have been around for a while. A lot of those groups pulled back completely. You know, they stopped acquiring practices. Many of them laid off their entire executive staffs. You know, all their acquisition teams, you know, they either moved within the organization to other divisions or they laid off entirely. 
So, you know, obviously those groups who'd been very, very aggressive up until, you know, early 2022, all of a sudden those buyers are gone. Other groups, they didn't completely stop acquisitions activity, but they definitely tightened the reins. You know, prior to COVID, most groups had a pretty, you know, strict box that they were looking at as far as opportunities. You know, they they wanted doctors that weren't too close to retirement. They wanted practices with, you know, at least a certain amount of income, at least a certain number of chairs, a certain amount of EBITDA in, in you know, very attractive, big metropolitan areas. And, you know, when, when we came out of COVID, the level of aggression, you know, that most groups were exhibiting, I mean, they were buying everything. A lot of those parameters just disappeared all of a sudden. You know, they were interested in much smaller practices, practices where, you know, doctors were knocking on retirement, where there was significant amount of what you call key man risk, the risk that if that doctor leaves, you know, maintaining income, maintaining EBITDA is, you know, is, is risky. You know, they were throwing caution to the wind and, and, you know, buying aggressively. And all of the sudden, when all these economic factors came into play in mid-2022, you saw those reins tighten up. A lot of these groups going back to that box that they used to be operating within and only buying, you know, sure bets. You know, they're not, they're not buying those practices that they were more disciplined about prior to COVID and getting back to that discipline. And the only reason they would have done that is because obviously, you know, they got hurt by a lot of bad business decisions. Yeah. Well, another thing I think it's important for everyone to understand is, you know, it's private equity money backing this and, and they need to understand how private equity money works. Typically, a private equity fund is going to raise money over a couple year period, right? And then over the next, call it six, seven years, they're going to put that money to work. And they get paid 2% of assets under management and typically 20% of excess profits or some metric. Now, every fund's a little bit different, but that's where the money's coming from. So I think to bring it back to where you are, now all of a sudden, you know, this is how the groups get the money and the interest rates went up. You know, that's basically, I think in your example, you said they went from five or six to 10 to 12. I've seen 12 to 14. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So all of a sudden, you know, let's just say you run a big group at a margin of 15%, but now all of a sudden your interest is 14%. There's not a lot of wiggle room. And Jonathan, I haven't told you this one yet, but we're not going to out who it is, but let's just say I have a friend who's a CEO of a very, very large private equity firm. Now he does not buy dental practices. But I was having dinner with him the other night and he goes, yeah, I've been hearing they got killed by the labor market. I kind of looked at him and I said, huh? He goes, yeah, they had to start spending out the wazoo to get labor and keep the things running and it's hurting them. And his company, not his division, is actually in the market. So I thought that was an interesting one. We don't know that's going to be different group by group, but you're getting hit by interest and you mentioned the labor market. So if all of a sudden you're at a 15, 20% margin, your interest goes to 13%, but your staff cost goes up by, I mean, I don't know, most of the doctors out there could probably tell you, I mean, in order to keep up, most people are giving their staff, what, everyone's probably been raised 10 to 15% over the last couple of years. I mean, I know we personally had to do it. So, I mean, if you're sitting there, you got to raise the staff. Now, all of a sudden, there's obvious cracks in the cash flow, right? I think that's what we're getting at. That profit margin that you bought at, if it's 15, 20 after the doctor gets paid, you could easily see how these groups just got wiped out with interest and 
staff. Yeah, and that's why we saw such a variety of responses from different groups, whether it was, you know, backing out entirely from acquiring practices to just becoming more disciplined. I mean, the reality is, you know, there are groups out there that are under significant financial strain, and we've seen that with, you know, there are several groups, and we're not going to name any groups on, on this podcast, but there are several groups who have, you know, seen complete turnover in their executive staff, you know, from the CEO down. And, you know, that's not really uh, indicative of a, a, you know, a a business that's operating healthily. And so, you know, we've also heard rumors of, you know, pending litigation where, you know, maybe certain terms that were promised at closing, you know, money that was contingent on future performance hasn't been paid out, whether it was earnouts or bonus money. And so, you know, there are definitely, you know, cracks in the foundation of some of these organizations showing, and it's, it's why if this is something you're considering doing, making sure that, you know, you're informed on the type of business you're affiliating with, you know, the health of that organization, their history, talking with, you know, other folks who've gone through transactions or transitions with that group, doing your due diligence is so important. Like I said, some of these groups that were just you know, very, very aggressive making bad business decisions in 2020, 2021, and early 2022, they're struggling right now. And, you know, it's, 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 it's very likely that within the next year, we'll see one of these larger groups go under. No, definitely. Now, I've got one more topic on probably the negative about DSOs I want to go over here. And then I do want to go over because I think you mentioned some groups, right? Right, right, right. So I I think I want to make it clear out there that the cracks in the foundation are showing, and I agree with you. I think there's going to be some groups that go under. There's no doubt. I mean, just look at those numbers, what they were buying. We think they were buying practices off inflated values to begin with. Some of them, not everyone, but some of them. Plus, not only that, but they were buying in record years for dental production. They were buying pre the labor shortage and at an interest rate that could be 10% less than it is now. I mean, it's just... I don't care how great the business people they are, that is going to be very, very tough to survive for a lot of people out there. But I do want to bring that back in because you mentioned people weren't getting paid, you know, things that were promised to them. And like everyone's heard of, you know, oh, we're going to get a roll on the equity. I'm going to get a turn on the equity. So what's going on behind the scenes oftentimes is, you know, one private equity fund comes in, they want to grow it, make it worth more, and then they're going to sell it to another fund, or there's going to be another financer on the back end. And now we don't know the details of why they're not getting paid. I mean, we can make a pretty darn educated guess here that, you know, hey, they're not getting paid because there's no cash and they can't get funding. They're not able to make the next turn. But something else I've heard here or seen, and again, we won't name any groups, is people were promised this rollover equity was going to be worth a ton of money. And all of a sudden, the rollover equity values weren't going up as much. So, I mean, you know, for the doctors out there that have it, you know, we've heard the stories, oh, we got promised this, it hasn't turned into this. You know, tell me a little bit what's going on with that part of the market and the rollover equity. And, you know, do you expect that to be problematic moving forward? So I think the fallout we haven't yet seen uh, in certain circumstances, but as far as the results we've seen, I mean, it covers a spectrum. I mean, we've seen you know, situations where that, you know, that equity ended up being worth, you know, 400, 500% of, you know, the value that they took initially. We've also seen situations where, you know, it only grew by five, 10%, you know, 
a lot of that depends on, you know, when you affiliate with the group relative to those equity or liquidity events or recapitalization events, all those mean the same thing. But, you know, most groups, you know, these private equity groups, they're looking to have a liquidity event every three to five years. And, you know, there are a lot of groups who started up right around 2019, just before COVID, and right now are in that three to five year window looking to recap. You know, they are on the market looking for a purchaser and have been since, you know, really since a lot of them since late 2022. And there have not been a huge number of these groups that have recapped in 2023. The big reason being, you know, almost every group went into this thinking they're going to buy practices at, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight X. You know, obviously that's not a definitive range, but, you know, a lot of the, the, the time, the multiples that you're hearing about aren't the true multiples that they're paying. And we just don't have time to get into that in this, but, you know, they're definitely buying for lower multiples than what you are hearing about. Okay. That doesn't mean those are the multiples that people think they're getting. But the, the concept is, you know, it's the concept of arbitrage. I can buy for a lower multiple and ultimately sell for a higher multiple. And, you know, the prevailing thought that most of these groups have presented to the doctors with whom they've affiliated is, hey, we're going to exit at 14x, at 15x, at 16x. I mean, sometimes, you know, it just got crazy in the presentations when you're looking at them. And, you know, the reality in this interest rate environment is, I mean, you know, this is not published data. So most of the information that we get is just from people that we know within various organizations finding out through back channels. But, you know, groups that are, that did recap in 2023 are recapping at 11x, at 12x, you know, significantly lower multiples than what they had anticipated. Now, you know, what the future holds is anybody's guess. I think the Fed has said that they're going to, you know, put a stop to interest rate hikes and potentially, you know, decrease interest rates over the next 12 months. You know, whether that happens and to what extent, I think that it's fair to say that none of us think we're going back to the interest rates of, you know, of years past, right? The free money is gone. No, and you know they've only got so much control over it too. So everyone would love for there to be free money and no inflation, right? right but right. those two can't happen at the same time. And right. now the politicians are in a bad spot fighting the inflation versus the economic growth. And right, there's no guarantee. We don't know what's going to happen. And that's why we're but, in the situation we're in. But the fact is, you know, the the free money is not coming back. And so you know whether or not groups are going to be able to, you know, sell at the types of multiples that had been previously projected when we're in this type of interest rate environment. That's what remains to be seen. And so, you know, the future value of this stock, I mean, in the vast majority of cases, it has proven to be, you know, an asset that appreciates in value. It is, however, it has always been the case. And we have always, you know, told doctors, it is what I call maybe money, right? Maybe you get it, maybe you don't. And if you're doing one of these transactions, you cannot assume that in order to reach your retirement goals, that money is going to be worth the types of money that they like to put in the PowerPoint presentations and give to you, that it's going to grow by, you know, four or 500%. I mean, you just cannot rely on that. Yeah, it's definitely not going to reach. I've seen some of those PowerPoint presentations. They get ridiculous, but let's switch gears here for a second because 
I think now it's funny. I, I felt like forever that me and you were out there giving people the other side of the equation going, hey, this is not as rosy as they're making it out to be. Be cautious. We, we never said don't do it. It's just, hey, you need to follow a process, do it the right way. Now I almost feel like, you know, the rumors are out there. Everybody's hearing it. And people always tend to remember the best stories and the worst stories, right? right? So when people were getting ridiculous multiples, my buddy got 10, probably didn't get 10, thought he got 10. But all of a sudden, everybody wants to sell to a DSO. But now you're getting, oh, well, I know a doctor whose earnout didn't get paid. And I know a doctor who's super unhappy. And these stories are becoming more and more prevalent. And I'll just give you an example. I, I want you to touch on, hey, are they all the same? But, you know, I was on the phone with a group the other day that buys ortho practices and, you know, they were very strict on who they wanted to buy and they were just calling me for something random. I was asking him how things were going. He goes, oh, we're great. <laughs> we're going to do more deals this year than we did the year before than we did the year before that. But, you know, they've always, what he was telling me was, hey, we've always been very cautious about what we buy, make sure they're good practices there. So to me, that indicates that, you know, not every group is the same, right? You're hearing horror stories on one end. On the other end, we got the guy saying, hey, do you got any good practices I want to buy? So I feel like now we have to give the truth of the other side of, hey, they're not all created equally. So, you know, for for the dentist out there that may be thinking, hey, did I miss the wave? Did they miss the wave? Is this still an opportunity to sell to a DSO? Has anything changed? You know, would you, your advice three years ago, would it, have changed for today based off what's going on. Yeah. So I, I, we did start off kind of, you know, hitting the, the, I guess the negative side of things. And, and uh, I, I guess the, the biggest takeaway, if you're listening should be whether you were looking at doing this, you know, three, four years ago, or you're just now starting to think about it. This is a great option for some folks, but it's also a terrible option for a lot of folks. No different than any other transition alternative, whether you're looking to, you know, affiliate with the DSO or bring in a partner or sell 100% to an individual. I mean, it works great for some, but not for everybody. And so, you know, the biggest part of it is figuring out your situation and making sure that whatever transition alternative you're thinking about, it makes financial and operational sense for you. Now, sticking with, you know, just DSO affiliations. Absolutely, it's still a great time to potentially affiliate with the DSO if we check that prior box and it makes sense for you. You know, the, but if I'm make it simple here, what I'm hearing is really other than the noise, the advice you would give, nothing's really changed. Right. I mean, we've seen obviously, as I mentioned, some tightening up in the market. Deal flow has slowed down, but you know there hasn't been a dramatic change in multiples. You know, we saw multiples go down a little bit in the, you know, late 2022 and over the course of 2023, you know, maybe a half a turn. But, you know, really the change was groups aren't necessarily interested in every opportunity like they were there in 2020 and in 2021. But if you're still, you know, an A plus opportunity and, you know, an A plus opportunity would be obviously a larger practice a practice with multiple locations, ideally, but not necessarily, more importantly, multiple providers, because that dilutes the risk of just Mm -hmm. one provider. You know, doctors that aren't within five years of retirement, because their big concern there is going to be replacing you. 
and with good margins, a, you know, a number of chairs where there's growth potential. I mean, if you're an A-plus opportunity, you're still looking at the same multiples that you would have been looking at in 2020, 2021, early 2022. Now, I, I kind of chuckled as you went through that because, you know, they were buying everything. everything. And there were times where I'm on the phone with people and I'm going, hey, what they offered you is not much more than what Dr. New is going to give you. Right. You know, are you really going to work for them for five years for 200,000 extra dollars when you have to work those five years at a discount? So I think from my perspective, because I do the financial side and say, hey, you know, this is going to get you this much money. I don't really advise them on the valuation or what group to work with. But from my side, a lot of those practices that they were buying that they no longer want to buy, we wouldn't have recommended go the DSO route anyways. We would have told you there's another transition alternative for you that is going to work better. You know, like, for example, if you're a, we run into this all the time where a one doctor GP practice doing like 1.2 million with a good margin calls us. And this is a great practice. Like, I think a lot of people come in, oh, should I do a partnership? This, I say, look, the guy doing 1.2, 1.3 million with his six staff members is living pretty good life, making a lot of money. This is a great practice for a buyer to buy. But your point, it's not a huge target for a DSO. They're not going to come in there unless you have a super, super high profit margin. They're unlikely to come in there and offer you $3 million. Today's episode is brought to you by the McGill Advisor. The McGill Advisor is your resource to reaching your financial goals faster with greater confidence and less stress. Members will receive our monthly newsletter delivered to their door, containing all the latest and greatest tips as it relates to taxes, practice management, and achieving financial independence. Membership also includes access to our online portal, including archived articles, webinars with available CE credits, discounts on educational seminars, and much more. Use code PODCAST20 for 20% off your first year subscription. Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on the group and it depends on the practice. And a lot of the, you know, I guess, confusion about what level of interest there might be for any individual practice stems from, you know, just differences practice to practice. Everybody tends to think that, you know, hey, the same size practice is going to get the same multiple as another practice the same size. When the EBITDA margin could be dramatically different. And that's what really drives what somebody might get. You know, somebody's got a buddy who sold to a DSO and they got, you know, 9X, so they should get 9X. Well, yeah, your buddy had a practice that was doing, you know, $8 million, had, you know, $2.5 million of EBITDA and four locations and six doctors, you know, whereas you've got a practice doing $1.2 million and you have $250,000 of EBITDA. These are not apples and apples. But yes, so, so, you know, some, some of the smaller practices with the lower margins that, you know, were selling then, there still would be a little bit of interest depending on the group now. But again, it really just it boils down to economics. And in your example, if you've got a practice that's doing 1.2 million bucks a year, $250,000 of EBITDA, well, I mean, you know, if you've got $250,000 of EBITDA, you might sell for 5X. You know, you're talking about a value that's right around 100% of revenue. Now, don't get me wrong. That's probably more than Dr. New is going to give you. But not dramatically more when you look at the breakout. Yeah, the terms, right. right. But then How you give up the cash. 250 of EBITDA for five years that you have to work back. Exactly. And you look at that and go, I'd probably be better off here. You know, and every situation's different. So don't take this as, 
if you're practice doing that, you have to go one way. When you look at the financials of it, you go, well, if I kept what I would make as a clinical doctor and kept that 250 of EBITDA for five years, ooh, I'd have you know $1.25 million of profit I kept plus whatever Dr. New gives me. And that's why I said some of these practices that, you know, there might not be as much interest for, you know, it, I think for a while, everybody was getting pushed the DSO route when maybe that practice shouldn't have been pushed the DSO route to begin with. Well, and a lot of that has to do with, you know, who's pushing and, you know, you've, you've got two sides that are, that historically have pushed folks to the DSO route. One is the DSOs themselves, because most of them grow through acquisition. They don't have a de novo model where they're doing startups. They're buying practices exclusively as their way of growing. And they only get bigger if they buy your practice. And, you know, there are some folks out there who demonize DSOs. You know, the reality is they're not doing anything wrong, right? I mean, they're trying to grow their businesses and they're trying to do so by buying other businesses for as little as possible. No different than you're trying to buy supplies, quality supplies for as little as possible. You're trying to, you know, keep your margins as strong as possible by spending as little as possible. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. And I think bring that into perspective, too, it's kind of the same when you sell your practice to anybody, right? Because we oftentimes see sometimes people get upset when their associate or whoever's buying wants to negotiate with them and say, it's not personal. (laughs) There's nothing inherently wrong with that. Look, you want to sell it for as much as possible. They want to buy it for as little as possible. You got to negotiate. But that's why it's also so important, especially these days as buyers, as these groups have gotten smarter and smarter and smarter, and these deals have gotten more and more complex. You have to know what you are getting into. You have to understand that you know, these folks, they're not your buddies. They're not your friends. And, you know, they're going to be, I can't tell you how many times I get calls from folks saying, hey, you know, I met a representative from this group and, you know, I I really, I really want to affiliate with that group. I'm like, okay, well, how many groups have you talked to? Oh, just that one. But I know they're the one. They're all likable. And it's because this is what they do for a living. Part of their job is to be likable. They are salesmen. And most of them, this isn't their first rodeo. They've done this in other industries before finally Healthcare, coming to the Healthcare, veterinary. That's I mean, right. this That's ain't right. their first time. So they're not your buddies, and their goal is to make you think you are getting a better deal than you really are because their goal is to pay as little as possible. And so if you are not educated in the types of things to look for, this is how doctors end up thinking that they get way better deals than they do. And the biggest areas of focus – the biggest areas of misinformation or, you know, deceptive terms, if you will, are one, misleading multiples, okay? Most of the offers that you look at will show a multiple that is not the true multiple you're getting because they're conflating terms into that multiple that make it seem like you're getting paid more for your practice than they really are. And they also know that the biggest thing people talk about are the multiples. Everybody's sharing what multiples they're getting. Okay, so they know that you've read enough articles to know that, hey, the multiple should be within this or that. And so they give you an offer that says that multiple. The other area that they're manipulating to make it seem like you're getting that multiple is the EBITDA itself, you know, and that really should be everybody's focus. Because the first question you should ask when you get offered a multiple of something is, okay, a multiple of what? You know, the most common thing that we see when we look these deals over or when we're working through deals that doctors bring to us, they've already talked to a group, they already have an offer, 
the biggest thing we see is that the EBITDA is dramatically understated. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if if there's an EBITDA figure that they're basing their offer off of and they're offering you 7X, but the EBITDA is $200,000 short, guess what? Not only are you not getting 7X, but you're not getting a multiple of the appropriate EBITDA figure. So, and, and you know, I could go on and on. It's misleading multiples, misleading EBITDA. You know, when you get into the other terms like stock, stock is by far the most convoluted and complex aspect of these deals. And stock with one organization is by no means the same or sometimes even comparable to stock with other organizations. So there's a lot of variability in that one component. And you and I could sit here for an hour or or more, really, and talk specifically about the stock. So I won't go too far down that rabbit hole. But bottom line, you know, if you are thinking about doing this, it's still a great time to do it. Multiples are still very strong. There are groups out there that are very well-run businesses that have continued to operate conservatively, that continue to make a good amount of money and are a safe investment. So if you're thinking about doing this, you know, knowing you're going to take stock in whatever organization you affiliate with, you want to have stock in an organization like that. But it still has to make financial sense for you and you still want to make sure you're getting the right deal that you know, represents what you're actually selling. So, you know, my message to those of you out here who are considering this is uh, if you've seen one DSO, you've seen one DSO, you need to make sure that you understand, you know, the number of different groups out there that could potentially be a good fit for you and what economic terms you should expect should you go down this road. So, you know, when we're working with doctors, we go through all of that at the forefront. You know, we know we do a deep dive on what the EBITDA is. So we're not going out there and expecting the buyer to calculate the EBITDA and tell us what it's worth. We already know. And we've explored with the doctor, you know, their personal financial situation. So they know that, hey, if we go out there and we get these economics, this set of terms, you know, that we can in fact afford to do this. This makes financial sense for us. We've already done all that legwork before we go out there because it is a time-consuming process. You know, when you go out there and you're dating different organizations to see if it's a good fit, to see if they can get to an economic point that makes sense for you. Obviously, it only makes sense to go out there and do all that and spend all that time and effort if you know that it's something that actually makes sense for you. Yeah. Now you missed, I kind of chuckled on your list of words there to stay away from. You missed one I run into on my end on should I do this? And it's generational wealth. Oh yeah. And that one all the time. Yeah. They promise this. And I'll give you a, a quick story here of something that actually happened. And then I'll, I want to get your take on why and what's going on. So I get, I went on to another podcast actually, and I was talking about, you know, Hey, what goes on and why they're buying who gets paid, how much they get paid. And I get this phone call and be frank, I got the same phone call about five times. I'm not going to name any groups here, but the phone call consisted of, I got told this was my only way to generational wealth. It was large practices where the owners were in their thirties. Very, very young guys, very successful multi-location practice owners. And they were told that this is their way to generational wealth. And now we've been doing this for, as a group, over 40 years. So we know the key to generational wealth. (laughs) It's owning a good business, which you have as a dental practice. Um, But then they all had this same odd story when they got on the phone and they asked, you know, well, hey, are you getting paid by this group to tell me this? And the answer got a little dicey. 
one gentleman said, do you have somebody who's independent you can send me to? And they sent him to an attorney. And the gentleman called the attorney and, you know, asked the question, hey, do you have a conflict of interest? And the attorney, he said, was very straightforward and nice. He goes, absolutely, I don't represent you. I represent them. And the guy was just, you know, he called up here basically to tell us what had gone on. He's like, I, I got the point. Thank you so much. But it brought up a good point. Which none of these doctors had realized that the people trying to force them to sell or I wouldn't say force, but encourage them to sell to a DSO. They found out after a line of questioning, we're not only getting paid by them, but also getting paid by the DSO. Yeah. So they were clipping money on both ends. I think I've even seen some of the people out there actually get shares in the DSO. So I take it, and you would know better than I, but I take it people are getting paid on both sides of the equation here. Yeah. So there's a lot of money flying around out there. You know, DSOs are paying a number of folks in order to, you know, get opportunities. You know, what you're alluding to, you know, something we've seen where brokers uh, actually get paid on both sides. And so, you know, it's something that you, if you're working with somebody, which I definitely recommend having representation if you go through this process for the reasons we've mentioned and ones we just haven't had time to go into. But you want to make sure that, you know, your representation is only getting paid by you, you know, ask the question because a lot of these groups are getting significant, uh, excuse me, referral fees from these DSOs. So, you know, by the time they get paid a commission on the sale by you, and then they're also taking a commission from the DSO, you know, it's the amount that they're taking off of your plate can be doubled in some cases now, what you're seeing. Can, can you explain that one to me real quick? You're saying the amount they're taking off your plate. Yeah. Thing. So, so if they get a referral fee, right? I mean, you don't care, right? The DSO pays it. You don't pay it, right? Well, n yes, the DSO pays it, but it is actually coming off of your plate. So let's say, you know, a group's done their analysis. You know, they've determined, hey, they're willing to pay X for your practice. And let's just make up some numbers. Let's say they've decided they're going to pay $5 million for your practice. Okay. That's how much they're going to spend on that practice. We'll ignore the break out of those terms for a second. So, you know, if they're willing to pay you $5 million for your practice and your broker gets a, you know, $300,000 referral fee from them, you know, based on an arrangement that they have with the group, well, you're only going to see $4.7 million of that deal. Okay. The other $300,000 goes as a kickback to your broker, and then you're going to pay your broker a commission also on the $4.7 million that you saw. Okay. So you mean to tell me that, you know, these groups out there are willing to, let's say they know your practice is worth five. The first thing is they're probably not going to offer you the five right off the bat, right? Well, to be <laughs> fair, they'd be dumb too, right? You don't come out with no, your best offer. hundred percent. But then if your broker is getting paid on both sides of the deal, yeah. oh boy, let's just say they come out the gate and they offer you three and a half and the broker is going to get cut in on that million and a half difference. You're telling me not only can they take money off your plate, but it almost seems like they could be encouraged to take money off your plate. Yeah. I mean, they, they're getting paid by both sides regardless. So the bigger the deal, the more they get paid on both sides of it. Because usually those commissions that they're getting from you are obviously tied to total enterprise value, but they're also getting paid, you know, a commission based on the size of the deal by the buyer themselves. 
Um, and as you mentioned, in some cases, those kickbacks, you know, are in the form of stock. So they're actually stockholders within the organization. So, you know, when you, when you look at it, you have to not only look at the cost of your representative potentially getting a kickback, but you also have to look at the potential lost opportunity because not every group out there will pay a kickback. You know, there are plenty of DSOs that refuse to do so. Do you think those brokers that get kickbacks from, say, groups A, B, and C are even going to bother taking your opportunity to groups D, E, and F? No. So groups who may be willing to actually pay more, who may be willing to offer a better economic package, who may be a better fit from a, you know, a philosoph- philosophical standpoint, they're not even going to get an opportunity to see your deal because they don't pay kickbacks. So yeah, unfortunately that goes on. But again, if you have representation, you just need to make sure you ask the question because they are, they they do, they're supposed to legally be honest with you about. Yeah. To the point, not every group's the same. So some groups won't pay kickbacks. The, I don't know if this was funny. I got a chuckle. It's really not funny though, when you really think about it, but somebody came to me and they had a pretty good offer from a DSO. And the younger partner, you know, he wanted to know, hey, should we take it? Should we not take it? And he was just too young to take it. But then he goes, I don't have a great feeling about this deal. I I want you to look at it. And so I looked at the whole thing and found out that they were willing to cut in these doctors on any amount that the group underpaid for any of their buddies' practices. So if their buddies' practice was worth five and they stole it for four, this guy was going to get 20% of the difference and, you know, for referring his buddy over to get ripped off. Yeah. And that was just, I think that was ultimately what shut that deal down. Was just said, this just isn't me. So that's, that's another direction that money's flying. So if you get a call from your old dental school buddy that you hadn't talked to in 20 years, and, you know, the first thing he wants to talk to you about is how great this organization is that he sold his practice to, you can, you can count on the fact that he's getting paid a referral fee should you decide to sell. <laughs> and, you know, hey, again, there's nothing wrong with that. But again, it's, it's important for you, the seller, the business owner, to make sure you understand you know, where these endorsements are coming from and what's motivating them, that you understand who's pushing you to sell to a DSO and why do they do anything other than sell practices to DSOs? You know, because again, I just go back to the fact that, hey, this, this can be a great fit for some folks, but we definitely tell more people that it's not the right fit than we tell it is the right fit. There's an imbalance in the number of folks who are selling to or affiliating with a DSO versus the ones that should. Unfortunately, more people are doing it than, than really should. And, and, you know, you can look at it from an age standpoint. One thing we did see in 2023 compared to prior years is more younger doctors are now doing this than were previously. You know, the biggest tightening up we saw on the corporate side was, you know, if you're over age 65, a lot of groups are out. In some cases, if you're over age 60, groups are out, okay? Because of, again, what we mentioned, key man risk. You know, you're closer to retirement and you leaving is not good for the long-term trajectory of the EBITDA, the practice. So a lot of the practices that we saw doing this in 2023 were on average younger than the practices that were doing it, you know, previously. And I mean, the age of the doctors. And there is a direct correlation between the age of the doctor and whether or not this is the right move for you. You know, it's, it's a lot trickier for younger doctors. The longer you intend to continue working, the further you are from retirement. In general, the less sense it makes 
to affiliate with the DSO. Now, that's from a financial standpoint. I have seen doctors who are in their late 30s and early 40s. They had huge practices with huge amounts of EBITDA. You know, I had a doctor who was, I think he was 42 years old, an orthodontist, sold his practice to a big ortho group for 25 million bucks. He got 20 of that in cash. He's a super conservative guy, drove a Toyota Camry, lived in a pretty rural area. That guy's going to be fine for the rest of his life. Man, he's going to have to beef up the suspension to fit all the money in the car. (laughs) Yeah, he's going to have to start spending more money to burn through it before he dies. But, you know, for that guy, it made sense because what he essentially bought himself was a five-year commitment and financial freedom for the rest of his life. He can stay there and keep working. He can go move somewhere else. He can do whatever. I get it in situations like that. But, you know, if you're 42 years old, you got to practice doing, you know, two million bucks a year and you got the prospect of getting five million dollars for your practice and, you know, maybe three and a half for that in cash. Buddy, that ain't getting you to retirement. So unless you're doing this for other reasons, financial reasons are not enough to justify doctors of that age doing this. And that's important for everybody. You know, obviously you want to understand the financial ramifications of doing it, whether or not it makes sense, but you need a reason to be doing this. Why are you doing this? That's very important. And it's something we explore with every one of our clients. Yeah. Well, Jonathan, I I want to wrap up. I appreciate you coming on here today. I want to wrap up by going through. So I think going Hill Group, I mean, I think John founded this place with Dr. Blair, you know, over 40 years ago, and it was really founded on getting doctors to financial freedom. So the the first step, and this is really where I help deal with it. The first step is, hey, are you ready? Can you afford to do this? If not, let's get there now. After you figure that one out, because I see this happen all the time from my end, and doctor comes to me and they want to do it, you know, hey, I, great, I'm going to do it this way. You know, what do you do? How do you work with clients and kind of what makes you different? Because we've talked, we've kind of skated around the edges of it, but it sounds to me, I mean, I'm not in your day to day. It sounds to me like you look at every single option for everybody to make sure, you know, hey, is there a better way? So when a client comes to you and, you know, now all of a sudden we've got it and, you know, I don't care which transition alternative they're thinking, but they say, hey, Jonathan, I want to do this, you know, walk me through how you work with them and, you know, do you guide them or how does that shake out? Yeah. So for every client, you know, whether again, we're, we're looking at a DSO affiliation or any other type of transaction alternative, it starts off with a conversation you know, figuring out what the doctor's goals are, what their current financial situation is, and, you know, long-term what they would like to do. And, you know, most doctors have no idea long-term what they want to do. And and by long-term, I really mean, you know, just five years out. And when I ask most doctors, hey, how much longer do you want to go? You know, the most common answer I get is five years. Five years. (laughs) I ask that same doctor the same question five years later, you know, what they typically say. Five Five years. years. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, you know, until all of a sudden it's yesterday, right? It's hard to look out into the future and know even a year or two in advance where you are, where you want to be and know. So, you know, I want to know from doctors what's in their head, what they're thinking. But, you know, I also want to be that voice of reason that, you know, can put everything on paper so they can see the financial ramifications of all of their options, because that's only going to help them make their decision. Some doctors are looking for flexibility. Some are looking for financial freedom, you know, and every iteration in between. And so my goal is to figure out what the hot button items are, what the goals are of the individual doctor and align a transition plan with that doctor that meets their financial goals, but also accomplishes the quality of life that they're looking to achieve. 
So it always starts with a conversation. And then from there, you know, we spell out the financials so they can see the ramifications of what it is that they might want to do so they can make a decision on which direction we want to go. And then we go in that direction. You know, in some cases it's, hey, let's explore the, you know, the market for a DSO affiliation. And depending on what we find there, we either go in that direction or maybe we take it into a different direction. I mean, the great thing about the DSO affiliation is you really don't have to commit to doing it, right? Most doctors who are considering it, it's something where they don't know what they don't know, right? They just want to know what it might look like. What's their enterprise value? How much of it they would get in cash? What kind of commitment they would have to look at? So we can explore all of that with them so they know exactly what potentially is out there. And then they can decide, okay, is that worth pursuing or do I need to start planning alternatively? Again, that's really easy to figure out. So, you know, I would suggest if this is something you're thinking about doing, give me a call, you know, give our office a call. You know, my phone number is 704-650-5729. You can also email our office. I talk with 100% of doctors before they ever work with us. And we're honest about whether or not they actually need us and when they might need us. Yeah, something else I, I think to everyone out there is start earlier because we see this a lot and it's becoming more and more problematic now that the DSOs don't want to deal with the older doctors is, you know, oftentimes I get a doctor come in, they're 62 years old and they say, hey, I really want to, you know, get a couple associates in here and, you know, transition this thing. We say, well, when do you want to be done? I say, well, about three years. <laughs> well, yeah, buddy, this, this is complicated and it's going to take a little bit of time. And I always warn people, I say, look, at that point, if you have one of these super large practices and you're older, you got two options, risk it with the associate. But if they burn you and don't buy it in a couple of years and something falls through, now you're back at the DSO. And now you're a couple of years older with five years on the back end. Yeah. You know, if you start planning this out in your fifties, and let's say you're going to go down this road and I think we'll have to have you back on talk about partnerships. And you say, hey, you know what? I want to go doctor to doctor. So I'm going to do a partnership. Well, if you get three years in and this guy burns you, but you did it at 55, now you're 58 and you're going to a DSO with five years to work left. It's not that bad of a scenario, but that's right. You know, you, you started at 62 and get burned and you're at 65 sitting in the DSOs. You're kind of going to hope they're buying you. If not, you're going to have to go probably steep discount. I mean, it's there's a world of options there, so we can't know for certain, but it's just the sooner you start figuring out, it's not saying you have to sign up, you have to do that transition alternative, but the sooner you start thinking about your transition alternative, the more options are open. Yeah. And that's one of the things really that differentiates us from everybody else is we don't just work with doctors who are looking to affiliate with the DSO. We do all types of transitions and have for over 40 years. And so, you know, we're not just going to try to push you in one direction because that's the only way that we get paid. But as you said, you know, all of those options, the only way to make sure that you have more options to choose from is to plan early. Absolutely. We appreciate you having having you on here and uh, we'll, we'll have you back here in a month or two and hopefully we'll go into some of those other alternatives, give doctors something else to think about. Uh, so make sure you tune in. Everybody out there, thank you again for listening, and I'll be back with you next week. This wraps up another episode of Drilling It Down. We look forward to seeing you for the next episode. In the meantime, make sure to visit our website, mcgilladvisory.com. And if you aren't a current subscriber, subscribe to our newsletter. Use code PODCAST20 for 20% off your initial subscription.